book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, we're going to do the unthinkable, and Lord willing, close out chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in the 15th verse. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. I want to focus this morning, really the majority of the text will be focusing on the first line of the 19th verse, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we beckon your throne this morning. Lord, we come in confidence to be because of your promises, because we know that we serve a God who answers prayers. And as we open your word this morning, our hearts are overwhelmed as we think about the gleanings and pastime of your word, understanding what Paul is trying to emphasize here about this exceeding greatness of your power. Oh Lord, we can't help but think of times past where your word and your power has been manifested as Daniel prayed and you shut the mouths of lion and Hannah prayed and you gave a barren woman a child you've raised from the dead, you've fed, you fed in the wilderness, you've set captives free, you've conquered armies, you moved seas, you've done all of this by your almighty power. Our request is this morning that you allow us here this morning, to catch a glimpse of your power, that our eyes may be enlightened to exceed the exceeding greatness of your power. We give thanks to you for all that you've done, and be with us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago, when we closed out looking at verse 18, We've seen that Paul was praying that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. Now, when he charged in verse 18, he wanted the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened in three ways. That we would understand what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches that existed in glory, and what is the glory of his inheritance in the saints. 
This was his desire. And we looked at them, amazed at Paul's desire. We, we said even several weeks ago that Paul's praise, that Paul's prayer was that as we see in that doxology in verses 3 through 14, as he offers up his praise to God, and really verses 15 through 23, it's Paul's prayer that they would grasp the deep truths of the things of God and the deep truths of the things of God were so that as they prayed, they would offer this same kind of doxology up to God. It wasn't that Paul wanted to seek praise that he would, you know, wow, look how amazing he prayed. Paul wanted them to understand who God was so that they would pray the same way. We see here in this text, but now he has turned a place, he's, he's, he has turned to a place where he wants others to understand uh, about this great salvation. I'm baffled how he closed out verse 18. I don't know if you grasped it, and I don't really think I could fully give enough time to understand the deep sentence that closes out verse 18. I found myself constantly going back to it and just reading it again as I was preparing to preach verse 19. Hear it again in verse 18. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, hear this. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I mean, let that settle in. The riches of his glory, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance, not your inheritance. The riches of the glory of the Lord's inheritance in the saints. Think about that. Think about what God has done in our lives. Is this not so amazing? Leaves us dumbfounded that what God has done in us is so unspeakable, so full of glory, so far beyond my understanding that God could take wretched people like we are, like we were, that God could take someone like me and do something so powerful in me, something so unexplainable in my life that I would be counted worthy, a glorious part of the Lord's inheritance. What is this, that we are our Lord's inheritance? This is the exceeding greatness of God's power. We look at each other today and say, well, I don't know if he would be what I would envision that I would want to inherit. But yet, in God's eyes, for the Lord, we are the, we are the glory of his inheritance. As we turn back, we really feel like when you look at verse 18, wow, what a, a mountain high experience that we sit back and look at our lives and say that we're this inheritance, but Paul is not done. He goes on in verse 19. He starts off with that word and, meaning, yes, he wants you to see that 
and we are the glory of his inheritance, but he's not done. And I want you to see more as I pray. I have more that I want to tell you. I mean, you would really think that Paul just poured his entire heart out, but he says, wait, I have another minute, um, another word for you. I'm praying that God would enlighten your eyes so that you would be able to hear. I, I want God to enlighten your eyes. Hear me that I'm praying with specificity. This is more than Lord be with them. This is more than I want you to understand the riches of the word. I, I want you to have a deeper understanding of him. But he prays even more that you may understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power. He wanted more than the Lord to be with them. He wanted them to get a deeper theological understanding about God. Why is this so important? Because this deep theological treatise that Paul first prays and, uh, and, and offers up this praise to God and in return is challenging the believers who heard this doxology of praise to get a hold of the truths of God's word so they could pray like that. This great deep theological treatise about our great God was written from a prison cell. You see, he says he prays that their eyes will be enlightened even more. Why? Why? Because Paul knows that the only thing that brings stability in life storms is a deeper understanding of God. A shallow understanding of God will cause you to be tossed to and fro. But he prays that their eyes will be enlightened even more, that they will understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. The first thing I want to draw from this text is the amazing direction of the greatness of his power. You know, they say the sun, this thing that we count on every day, though we say it's bright, though we can get sunburn from it, they say that that star is only a star of, when it comes to brightness, of only of the fifth magnitude. It puts forth this mild yellow light upon us. This article said about the sun that it is a hundred thousand times less luminous than its brightest neighbor. It's 864,000 miles in diameter. It consists of 335 quadrillion cubic miles of violent hot gases. It weighs more than two octillion tons. It orbits in the center of our galaxy. It orbits the entire Milky Way system in which we exist once every 200 million years. It says that our eyes, when we look out into the galaxy, we can only see 7,000 stars. But they believe that there's somewhere around 100 billion orbiting stars. So it is to say, in this galaxy, there's 600 million billion stars that we can't even see. 
One man calculated that there is as many galaxies outside of the Milky Way galaxies as there is stars inside of the Milky Way galaxy. They said that the nearest galaxy to our galaxy is the Hydra, which is only 2.7 billion light years away. Even more. They said that the distance of the universe is expanding 28 miles per second. It's continuing to grow. Why is this so important? Read the text. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? The exceeding greatness of God's power was not manifested on a six literal day creation. It's amazing that out of nothing he made all of this. The exceeding greatness of God's power was not when he created all the universe. It was not when he created the Milky Way galaxies. The exceeding greatness of God's power was not when he made the sun. It wasn't when he made the moon. It wasn't when he made the stars. It wasn't when he made the angels. The text says, Paul is bringing to our understanding the exceeding greatness of God's power was not to any of those things. It was to us who believe. This is the exceeding greatness of God's power. We look and we find ourselves in a day where people worship the creation greater than the creator. They marvel about all of these things that exist out here and yet are not baffled that scripture says the greatness of his power was manifested in what he did in you. Saving an old wretched person like us. First, recognize that there is no follow-up to that sentence. It's all-encompassing. That we may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. When I say there's no follow-up, I mean it does not say that you may understand what the exceeding greatness of God's power even more if you become a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't say that you will have more of the exceeding greatness of God's power if you tithe more than the other person. It doesn't say that you will have more of the exceeding greatness of God's power if you hold a position in the church. That's not what it said at all. There's no follow-up. It says that what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who who what? Who believe. We are the ones who are the beneficiaries of the exceeding greatness of his power. Well, how do we get this power in our life? Well, the text makes it clear. It is the exceeding greatness of his power is manifested in us upon belief. Faith is what provides access to the greatness of God's power. God is not like our employers. I don't know if you have ever been in this situation, but when I first started out in the trades, I had arrived at a place where we was in a union. The contract said I was due a raise. So I had just gotten a new boss, and I went over to see him. And I said, hey, you know, I'm due a raise. He said, listen, the only thing I know about you is six months ago you was cutting grass. I said, oh. He said, if you do more, 
I'll give you more. Well, I walked away pretty bitter that day. But God is not like an employer. God does not say that you will get the exceeding greatness of his power if you do more for him. The exceeding greatness of his power comes upon faith. Through faith, we have unlimited access to the power of God. Do you see Paul's desire to encourage these people here? Do you see his desire to encourage us here today? As we set out to send missionaries all across the world, as we set out to evangelize in, these, in this community, as we're out here preaching to those people and the sun is beating down upon us, let the sun be the reminder to you that the exceeding greatness of God's power was not given to the sun, directed towards the sun that is beating down upon you, but to you who are preaching the word. That's the greatness of God. And so he says in verse 19, for those who believe you have the access to this power far beyond our understanding. But don't be confused about the magnitude of this power. In this verse here, Paul is trying to explain to the believer just how much power is here. And really, when you take a step back and read verse 19, you can really see that Paul has brought us to a, a couple different thought processes on power. He said, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? That's one word. To us, word who believe according to the working, that's another word for power, of his mighty, that's another word for power, and then power. All four of these words, though, Paul is using them in the original Greek. These are actually four different words that Paul is preparing the reader to wrap their mind around. See, the first word he says here, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? We know this word, we've heard it, we've seen it. It's from the word dunamis, dynamite. Life-changing, structure-changing power. He says, and that what is the exceeding greatness of his power? And then he says, to us who believe according to the working." Now, this word, this word working, we all understand it takes power to work. Do we not? We come home tired. Why? Because we used up all of our power, all of our strength. This comes from the Greek word energia. So he says that according to the working, meaning according to the energy. And then he goes on to say, according to the working of his mighty. This is from the word kratos. This is also translated power, dominion, might. And then he goes on with the other word, mighty power, which is iskus, which isn't the same as other words. Remember, the first word is dumos, dynamite. It means inherent power. The second word is energy, which means operating power. The third word, kratos, which means ultimate power. And the fourth word, iskis, which means endowed power. 
And so what Paul is saying, no matter where you turn in ministry, no matter what you do, whether you need energy to go on in ministry, God's got you covered. Or whether you need ultimate power, kratos, in your ministry. I mean, when you're facing things that you know that you cannot change, God has you covered with his kratos, with his ultimate power. When you need God to move obstacles in front of you, God has you covered with with his dunamis, with his dynamite power. No matter where you look, when you struggle to go on, God has you covered as you seek to do ministry for him. So he says in verse 19, I want you guys to understand what is the exceeding greatness of God's power to you who believe. Don't you ever think that God has come up short on a need for you. Don't ever think that there is an obstacle that you're facing in ministry that God cannot help you through in this life. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to give you an example. Love it. I want to give you an example of just how powerful God is. I want to give you an example of the power that dwells within you right now, even though you don't realize it. He gives it to us in verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ. Meaning this power. Which he, this is the same power that he worked in Christ. This is the same power that he used him. him when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. The same power that is in you is the same power that he used in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now he'll say, he put Christ in this magnified position. He put Christ in this new position. And really you can see that in the next few verses, 19 through 23, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He put him in this new position. How did he put him in this new position? How did he give him in this new position in heaven? How did he raise him from the dead? How did he give him through the authority, the authority as the headship over the church? Oh, verse 19 tells us. Through the exceeding greatness of his power. We say his power exceeds what? Why does Paul say it like this? The exceeding greatness of his power. <laughs> you could say it like this. The, the word exceeding means to pass the mark. So you could apply it to your life like this. There is an obstacle in front of you, a situation, whether it's family, whether it's personal, whether it's commitment, whether it's this or that or the other, the exceeding greatness, meaning what it means is that no matter what the situation is you're facing, his power surpasses the mark that you need to conquer that which you're facing. 
the exceeding greatness. It means it's literally his power is thrown beyond the mark. So what Paul is trying to say about that you might understand what the exceeding greatness of his power is, his desire is to bring you to a place of measurement so that he can further explain to you it's immeasurable. You're never going to face a situation that his power does not exceed. You're never going to face a situation in this life. No addiction in this life, no illness, no death in this life will pass the exceeding greatness of his power. And that's why he really brings us, I feel, to verse 20 when he says, and this power is the same power that I wrought in Christ because mankind's ultimate fear is death. Is that we're going to die and move on and it's all going to be over and I'm going to lose. We say to ourselves, oh Lord, spare us so that we can just live a little longer. And I understand that we all have a desire to live in his life and enjoy the families in which God has blessed us with. But even in death, it does not mean that God is powerless. It doesn't mean that God's power has ran short in your life. That's why he says the exceeding greatness of his power that is in you, that was directed to you, to us who believe, was also manifested in Christ when I raised him from the dead. And if that power was in him and raised him from the dead at your death, there's coming a day where I will likewise raise you from the dead. There is never a place in this life for those who believe in which God's power runs short. Don't rush by this. He says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Don't rush by this testimony. I, I am afraid that sometimes we kind of just move by this thought when we say, well, yeah, we believe that Christ died and rose again according to the scriptures. We make that statement really, uh, it's almost numb to us at times. It's just a confession. It's like a statement that we do, that Christ died and rose from the grave. Matter of fact, it's always interesting at times when you're not fully prepared and yet you find yourself at a place and an opportunity where you get this chance to witness to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And you tell them about Christ who died and rose again and you see their eyes light up like, what? Like, yeah, yeah, he died, but he rose again. Like, hold on, what are you talking about? Like, died and rose again. You almost forget the amazement in that statement that he died and rose again. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was, you know, for nine minutes on this uh, TV, you know, Damar Hamlin. He died on the field and everyone sought to revive him and they was able to resuscitate him and he's alive. And I mean, for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it's still even going on. Everybody has, you know, love for DeMar Hamlin and that's great. And I'm thankful that he's still alive. And if he's not saved, that the Lord saves him. He has another opportunity. The whole world was in awe that Damar Hamlin was able to be resuscitated. The power, though, that it took Christ to be raised from the dead after being beaten, after being tortured, after being bound, 
after being crowned with thorns, mocked, unfairly tried, nailed to a cross, suspended in the air, stabbed in the side, wrapped in a borrowed tomb, uh, wrapped and placed in a borrowed tomb. No team treated him. No resuscitation applied. Literally, he died for three days and was placed in this borrowed tomb. And literally, three days later, stepped out, not this mangled body of flesh, he stepped out, surpassing his previous mortality with a glorified, resurrected body. What an astounding demonstration of the exceeding greatness of God's power. It's far beyond our understanding, and yet it doesn't barely catch the airwaves today. Yet it seems that we've grown numb to the reality of the exceeding greatness of God's power. Matter of fact, Paul, I mean, really get this. Paul says, I don't even need a follow-up example to this. When I'm going to tell you about the exceeding greatness of God's power, I'm not following up. I'm not going to give you another example because this one right here will blow your mind. That God wrought in Christ this exceeding greatness when he raised him from the dead. And yet, it doesn't seem to impact us that this power is in us. Even more in verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly, in the heavenly places. God demonstrated his surpassing power, not only when he raised him from the dead, but he gave him a position in heaven seated at his own right hand. Third, God demonstrated his power, not only when he raised him from the dead, not only when he set him at the right hand, but then he said even further, God showed his power even more. Man killed him. God raised him. God seated him at the right hand. And by the way, he put all things under his feet. He showed the exceeding greatness of his power when he put all things under subjection to him. Verse 21, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominions and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Jesus position of vast authority over heaven and earth. Christ not only is exalted above earthly rulers, he's exalted above heavenly powers, but he's also exalted above angelic and demonic. What an encouraging thought that not only do we have the exceeding greatness of this power towards us, but though the one who's making intercession on our behalf, the one whom we seek also has power over the one we face. This is the exceeding greatness. Fourth, God demonstrated his surpassing power when he gave Christ to the church as head over all things. And he said, and had put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Yet Paul points out particularly that God placed Christ over the church as its head, governing shepherd. So what does this all mean for us here in the closing of this chapter one? it really brings to light that we desperately need God's unexplainable and sustaining power in our lives. Why does he say it in four different ways? 
I think it's to show us that no matter the task we face, whether it's just strength to go on, whether it's his ultimate power, I think he gives it to us in these different ways to show us no matter what you face in life, in service for the Lord, we need him. We need him. Yet so many Christians, it seems today, live their lives relying on their own wisdom, relying on their own insight, relying on their own knowledge, relying on their own strength. And this is why we see so many exhausted believers. It's that we desperately need God and yet we fail to seek his might. We will never, you will never, I will never find ourselves in a place where we have outgrown the need for God's power in our lives. We're never going to be so seasoned in faith that we have arrived at a situation that we can handle without him. No such situation exists. So what is the evidence that we have this power? What is the evidence that we have this power in our lives? It's growth. What is the growth? What is, how do we show that we have this? That's what he says in 18. That the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. When we leave here today, I pray that we leave here today with us having a deeper understanding about the one we sang about. I pray that when we leave here today that the offering that we put in the offering plate that we leave out of here with a greater understanding that the one we gave to was worth much more than what we did give. And that when we leave here, that we have a deeper understanding about why he sought to preserve this word for us. You know, when my kids, when they uh, irritate me, and I, I know you're not supposed to be irritated with your children, but I, I fail. But when my kids irritate me, I say, listen, I don't want your apology. I want change. Because when, when, when they change, it means they have fully understood what I've been trying to convey to them. Several years ago, uh, my boys embarked on this rebuilding lawnmowers and servicing lawnmowers. It was a wonderful thing for them to do besides uh, you had to sleep at night with your head hanging out the window because the entire house smelled like gas. But one of the things I tried to emphasize to my children is that when you're testing motors and you're running them and you're having to adjust the calibrator and adjust the tension on the springs and all of these things, that you have to be extremely careful because you're going to find yourself in a place where you get burned. You see... Uh, I was continuously reminding them of this thing because I understood it. I burned my own arm. Well, several months back, my wife sends me a text message. And the text message is a picture of a hand. And the hand said, hot. Well, my wife then sends me the video of my son, Caleb, out working in the front yard. And there he is working on this commercial mower and he leans over while it's running and puts his hand right on top of the muffler that says hot. You know what happened? The eyes of his understanding were enlightened. 
he completely understood what I had been trying to convey to him all those years. Now, when the mower runs, he don't even go to that side. He gets it. God doesn't want us to get at a place. He wants us to get beyond a place where we're just quoting scriptures, where we're just coming to church, where we know that, you know, Christ raised from the dead. He wants us to get beyond the place where we understand that there is this succeeding greatness in his power. He wants us to get to a place where the eyes of our understanding has been enlightened to the point where it grips us. That we live each day in his power. That we live each day with confidence that there's nothing that we are going to face that God is not going to handle and cannot handle. There is nothing beyond him. His power always exceeds the mark of our need. He wants us to get to a place where we're not quoting scriptures, but we are gripped by it. We live it. It pours out of us in our lives. We're, we're going to, um, Lord willing, if we're here this evening, I plan on preaching about Noah, a man who was gripped by God's word and moved 120 years and never looked back. One message from the Lord. Yet we have the completed word of God and it does not sway us. We've failed to fully understand the exceeding greatness of God's power. Charles Spurgeon said this to his congregation, trying to sum up the need to seek our strength only in God, who Jesus, who God, who uh, God, who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heaven. He said, dear brothers and sisters, go home and never ask the Lord to make you strong in yourselves. Never ask him to make you anybody or anything. Be content to be nothing and nobody. Next, ask him, ask him that his power may have room in you and that all those who come near you may see what God can do by nothings and nobodies who live with the desire to glorify God. The exceeding greatness of his power is not to exalt you in this world. The exceeding greatness of his power is to exalt him through you in this world, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the hurdle. That is the exceeding greatness. So Paul's prayer, so should be the prayer of all of us, that the eyes of our understanding, remember, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to lost people. These people are saved. Matter of fact, some of the things that he'll cover in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 will provide us even a deeper understanding where they stood in God's word. These people had an understanding of God's word. Yet, he says, my desire is that you will be enlightened even more. Why would they need to be enlightened even more? Why would they need to be strengthened even more? Why would they need to be reminded about God's power even more? It may very well be that we've already covered this, but in chapter 6, where he tells them to put on the armor of God. 
Why do you need this? Because you're at war with this world. We are at odds with this world. We are set against it, not set with it. We want to do great things for God. We must walk with God. Told the Sunday school this morning this. You're never going to find somebody who has done something great for God in the Bible who did not first walk with God. And I know we say to ourselves, like, well, you know, we, I want to do something great, but I don't have much time left. It's not how much time you have. It's how you spend the time that you do have. If you only have some little time left, then burn it up. That's what makes a difference in this world. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you this morning. We magnify your name, Lord. This testament of the exceeding greatness of your power. Lord, I pray that though even standing here today, reading your word and preaching your word, there's so much about this that I'm trying to wrap my mind around about the power that is in you directed to us. Yet, Lord, we know it's true. Lord, enlighten our eyes and give us understanding that we are not some peasant beggar in this world. We're sons of God, adopted through Christ, empowered by you in every thing that we face in this life. You have not left us alone. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.